So tonight we are going to wrap up our series called Objections. And in this series, we've been talking about those times when we just sort of object to the way that God is doing something. When we disagree with the way that he is maybe handling a situation in our lives. And um, I was thinking about objections, and I was thinking about as a pastor, I do a lot of weddings, right? But I purposefully don't do that part of the wedding where I give people an opportunity to object if people should get married, right? Um, I've seen and heard some pretty scary stories about such things. Um, I was just looking online at some stories, and, and uh, there was apparently at one wedding, the niece of the, of the bride was there at the wedding, and the, and the pastor said, does anyone see any reason or have any reason to object to these two being married? And, and the little niece yelled out, don't do it, I'll never love him. So nice little, uh, you know, I guess just has her aunt's back, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I, I saw another one where some friends were trying to convince their friend, don't marry this girl. They're saying to this guy, this is not the one for you. You know, you need to marry somebody way different. Do not marry this girl. And so again, they're there at the, at the wedding, and the pastor says, does anyone object? And at that exact moment, a, a thunderbolt of lightning struck outside, knocked the power out in the building. And all the friends are like, see? Even God objects here, right? Um, and the last one I'll just share with you tonight was at a wedding where a grandfather stood up when the minister asked if anybody objected and said, I've known my granddaughter her whole life, and I know she hates clowns, and this guy she's marrying is the biggest clown I've ever met. (laughs) So I'm glad I wasn't at that wedding. Now, at at my wedding, I didn't give anybody a chance to object. I didn't let my my dad and my father-in-law, who were doing this ceremony, I didn't want to let Kelly even object. I'm getting out of here, right? Um, So I wasn't going to let that happen. But what we did find out after the ceremony was that um, our, our friend Bill had gone around just recording messages from different people, and he made the mistake of getting Grandma Jansen, my grandma, to start talking. And when you get Grandma Jansen talking, you're not going to get her quiet for any time soon. And so she begins by saying this. She says, oh, I'm just so happy for Doug and Shelly. I was like, her name's Kelly, first off, right? Uh, learn her name, Grandma. It's going to be important in life. Now, she didn't object to Kelly. She actually went on to say how much she loved Kelly, and then she said, there was this one girl, Doug, that you dated. Not one of us liked her, okay? So we had sort of that afterward objection thing going on with Grandma. But I just wonder, if given the opportunity, if God said to you, hey, do you object to anything I'm doing in your life? What would we say back? What things would we say, yeah, okay, I object to this. Or I object to the way you're handling that. Or I don't think you're handling this well at all, God. I completely disagree or disapprove. In fact, that's what the word objection means. It's a feeling of disapproval or a reason for disagreeing. And we all have times in our lives and in our relationships with God where we disagree with him or we disapprove of a way that he's handling something. And so we've been talking really in this series about three scenarios that this plays out. The first week we talked about the objection of pain. Those times in our lives where we're, we're going through pain, we're going through suffering, and we're just objecting to the way God is handling it. Saying, God, why aren't you stopping this? If you were good, you wouldn't allow this. And we saw that Jesus is the answer to our objection of pain. That Jesus suffered himself, that he walks with us through our pain, and he wants to help us through our pain. Then last week we looked at the objection of an unanswered prayer, right? When we're asking God to do something, he doesn't do it. And we just talked about how so often that's God either being very gracious and not giving us what would be terrible by saying no to us, or he's just saying wait because he's got something that he wants to do in our lives, but we're not ready for it yet. And I just kind of challenge you, when we haven't heard an answer yet, we just keep praying. We keep on seeking God intensely about that unanswered prayer. And as we do, we're going to see lots of yeses in our lives. He's going to show up. He's going to answer lots of prayers. Tonight, I want to talk with you guys about the objection to God's word. This is when we're reading the Bible, and something just doesn't sit 
well with us. We're reading the Bible. Now, sometimes when something doesn't sit well with us, it's because it has to do with the way we're living our lives, and God wants us to live differently than the way we're living, but that's not really what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about those times when we object to maybe something that seems like a contradiction or something that seems that, that we're surprised that God would endorse or seem to promote. So why is this so important to talk about? Well, talking about these objections we think is really important because when we let these objections into our hearts and we just kind of let them sit, they tend to build up these walls in our lives between us and God, right? And we've been talking about this throughout the series. Some of us have huge walls built up against God. Some of us just little ones. But any distance from God because of an objection is too much distance, right? We want to be as close to him as we can be. So we think rather than pretend these objections don't exist or, or we're afraid to bring them up in church, no, we've got to talk about them and get them out there in the open and learn how to work through them. So tonight, let's talk about this objection to God's word. Um, this is so important because when you and I stumble and we let some kind of objection to God's word build a wall in our lives, we really, we stop hearing from God, right? Because the primary way that God speaks to us is through his word. So when you and I are reading the Bible and it's like, okay, I'm reading Matthew and it says one thing and then I flip over and and John a few books later, it seems to say something else. It almost seems to contradict. Now I'm going to build this wall between me and God. Well, suddenly I'm not going to be hearing God's voice because the way God speaks most clearly is through his written word. Or we're reading through the Bible and we start to see, it seems like God is endorsing something we're surprised he's endorsing, like slavery or polygamy when, so, you know, when a guy marries more than one woman. And it's like, wait, if God is promoting slavery or endorsing polygamy, how can I trust him? How can I follow this God? And so when that happens, we build these walls between us and our Bibles. And if the number one way God speaks to us is through our Bibles, then that's a really dangerous place to be, right? I've done this. I'll just be honest with you. Part of my job is to be in God's word every week, right? It's to be reading it and trying to study it and trying to bring out a clear, relevant message for you guys. And there have been times I'm reading the Bible and I'm going, why does it have to be in there? Why does it have to say it that way? It seems to contradict something else. Or, or why does it seem like God is okay with this or okay with that? And I have to be really careful to not let that turn into a wall. I have to learn how to work through it, right? And so tonight I want to help you learn how to work through those objections of God's word, those objections to his word. It's so important because like I said, when we let a wall get built up, then we shut down the most important way God speaks to us through his written word. So, so in his word, when I'm close to God and I'm in his word every day, I'm reading the Bible every day, do you know what I'm getting? I'm getting insight about how to be a better spouse, a better parent, a better friend. I'm getting insight about how to make wise choices. Most importantly, I'm getting closer to a person, to Jesus, right? That's the point of it all. The Bible, reading the Bible is not just about knowledge. It's about getting close to a person, the person who wrote the book to you and me, right? And so when I have built a wall because of some objections between me and God's word, suddenly those things aren't happening anymore. Another thing that I think happens that's really dangerous when we build a wall between us and our Bibles is we start to say, well, you know what? I don't know that I can trust the Bible because it seems to have some objections, seems to say some things I'm not really comfortable with. So I'll just pray and I'll still go to church and I'll worship, but I'm just gonna let God speak right to me. Now listen, God does speak right to us. He does. He wants to speak right to you, but he always is gonna speak something that goes along with what his written word says. He's never gonna violate that. He's never gonna tell me to do one thing and I'm gonna open the Bible and it's gonna say do something else, okay? I'll give you an example of how dangerous this can be. When Kelly was in college, she had a friend whose family had been torn apart. And the reason they were torn apart is uh, her family, you know, mother, dad, three kids, all grew up in a great church. 
and they're growing up, and well, I guess they thought it was a great church. They're growing up in this church, and as Christians, followers of Jesus, and everything's kind of going okay. All of a sudden, one day, somebody from the church goes up to the dad in the family and says, God gave me a word for you. He says, you married the wrong person. He says, this other lady over here, like literally points to someone on the other side of the same church. He says, that's the woman you were supposed to marry. And in fact, if you would leave your wife and you went and married her, you would have a powerful ministry, and God would use you mightily. This guy listens, leaves his wife, abandons his kids. Of course, they never had a powerful ministry with this woman, but destroyed their lives. And that's what happens when we don't know God's word. If they had known God's word, they would have known God was never saying that. And so we got to be so careful about letting these objections to God's word build a wall between us and Jesus. So have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that place where you're reading the Bible and you're like, ah, I don't get this. I don't understand this. I don't want this to say this. How do we work through that? How do we work through the seeming contradictions? And how do we work through those things that we're surprised God seems to endorse? If you're not a follower of Jesus, this might be why you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're like, I read the Bible, and I didn't understand it, and I didn't like it, and it said things I was really surprised at, and I thought, man, if that's God, then how can I follow him? Well, tonight, I hope to help you learn how to work through all that and see God for who he really is. Is. So you guys know how I normally like to do things. I like to look at one passage of scripture and just sort of look at that deeply and go verse by verse in depth. But tonight we're going to bounce around a little bit to accomplish what we need to accomplish. And so we're going to start out just looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is an important foundation for us. Verse 16, Paul said this to Timothy. He says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what are these verses saying? They're saying every part of God's word is from God. Every part of scripture is God-breathed. It's from the mouth of God. We can't start to decide, I like this part, but not that part. We can't start to say, hey, that's really relevant and clear to me, so it must be from God, but that part, not so much. It seems like a contradiction. Either I'll pretend it's not there, or I'll build a wall between me and God. No, it's all from him, and it's all pure, and it's all good, and it's all perfect. So what do we do? Question number one. Oh, if you're a note taker, by the way, you'll love this. If you're not, just sit back, okay? But if you're a note taker, get ready to roll. If you're not, just sit back and enjoy it, soak it in, all right? Fall asleep, whatever you want. But first question, what do we do when the Bible seems to contradict itself? What do we do, right? Because for years of my life, I let contradictions come between me and God. I, I, I don't know about you, but maybe there were even times where I would continue to read the Bible, but it didn't feel life-giving. It felt almost full of anxiety because here I am going, can I trust this or can I? You know those moments when you're reading the Bible, it's like, oh, this is great. Oh my gosh, it's just feeding my soul. But then there are those times when you're reading the Bible, you're like, it feels like a waste of time. It feels like I don't know if I could trust it. So what do we do when these contradictions pop up? Well, first off, let me just tell you, you know, so often people say, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. Full of contradictions. Okay, first off, only one half of 1% of the entire Bible has seeming contradictions. One half of 1% of the entire Bible has seeming contradictions. Now, we're going to work through that. I don't believe there are any contradictions in the Bible, but even just things that look like contradictions, one half of 1% of the whole Bible. And of, of all of those, not one of them violates any major theology within Christianity. What does that mean? In other words, there is no question or contradiction about Jesus loving you. There is no question or contradiction about whether Jesus died and rose again for you. And for me, it's not like Matthew says he did and John's like, no, I didn't, you know, there's no contradiction there. Okay. So even the seeming contradictions have nothing to do 
with these big kind of, you know, they call them the big rocks, the big stones, the things that you got to kind of like put down as the foundation. No, this is all like those little tiny pebbles that fill in the cracks, okay? But I believe with all my heart that even there, there are not actual contradictions. So what do we do? When these contradictions pop up, what do we do? Well, there's some things we need to know. Number one, we need to know that translation can sometimes make things difficult, right? The Bible was written in three different languages, none of them English, right? It was Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And so when you're translating the Bible, it can prove to be difficult at times. Now, it doesn't mean that there are contradictions. It just means sometimes you have to do the work to figure out what it's actually saying. I'll just give you an example from like our everyday life. Um, Like in our language, you know, as we use the word graffiti, if you look up what the word graffiti means, it actually means to scratch, okay? Now, if you were going to go do some graffiti tonight after church, don't. But if you were, you wouldn't be scratching anything, right? You'd be painting on something. You'd be adding layers, not taking them away. So we see there's an issue with translation there, okay? Another example, um, if you were over in England, the word napkin actually means diaper, okay? You get yourself in some trouble with that one. Sitting at a nice restaurant, you say to the, the, the waiter, can I get a napkin? I made a little bit of a mess here, right? uh, Oh, shoot, right? In fact, my whole table needs one. Oh, no, no, anyway. Um, so that could cause some problems, right? So there's some issue with translation. You have to figure that out, all right? So just going in, we go, okay, maybe not contradiction. Maybe we just need to work on this and figure out how this all works together. The next thing I want you to know is that sometimes science, history, and archaeology haven't caught up with the right answer yet. So what do I mean by that? God's word says something about science or archaeology or history, and science, archaeology, and history haven't found that what the Bible says to be true is actually true. I'll give you the best example I can. Archaeology over the last 50 years has just like blown through the roof proving the Bible. Okay, And so, all right, 50 years ago, there were lots of things people believed that the Bible was wrong about. So my dad's about 60 years old. So when he was 10, he's sitting upstate New York with Grandma Jansen. Hi, Shelly, right? Sitting upstate with Grandma Jansen in church every Sunday. And the pastor would probably be going through some scripture there. My dad's 10 years old. And there would be some things that he would bring up where the Bible says, hey, this is where this is located. Or this is where that city is located. And if you were to compare notes with archaeology at that time, 50 years ago, they would have said, no, we haven't found that to be true. But in the last 50 years, archaeology has caught up with the Bible. And now all those things, when my dad was 10, we go, oh, my gosh, they found that city. And it was right where the Bible said it would be. And so sometimes archaeology, science, and history just simply haven't caught up yet with the right answer. It's not a contradiction. It's just we got to keep on waiting for these things to catch up and go, oh, wow, God's word really is true. That's incredible. And I'm going to give you some examples of how this has worked a little bit later. But where we're going to spend most of our time tonight is is, is with answer number three. What do we do when contradictions come up? We look harder. we got to look harder when it comes to figuring out what's going on in these passages. My son Cade, who is 12, has recently become completely obsessed with Rubik's Cubes. Absolutely obsessed. He's buying all these Rubik's Cubes. He's looking up all these things online about how to do them and how to make them. 45 seconds is his record. He can do a Rubik's Cube in 45 seconds. I can't turn one block. It takes me 45 seconds, right? And so he's like going crazy with all this stuff. He's like looking at all this code. He's got stuff written out and graphs and charts and everything. It's insanity. He's like, Dad, I got to get a new Rubik's Cube. It's like this special one. I'm like, you have three. He's like, I know, but this guy in Tokyo did it in three seconds underwater. I'm like, okay, you know, whatever, man. He has researched, he has worked, he has studied, he has practiced and practiced and practiced for a Rubik's Cube. And I just wonder, 
could we put the same passion in as we're reading through God's word and we see something we don't quite understand to figuring it out? I mean, isn't it true? How many times as you're reading through the Bible, you've gotten to a perfect uh, certain spot and you've decided, yeah, I don't like that. So either I'm going to stop reading this or I'm just going to skip to the next chapter. What if we just stopped and got to the bottom of it? What if we looked harder and that wall in our life, that objection that we had built between us and our Bible was broken down? So let me give you some examples of how this works. So let's look at some actual contradictions that people bring up, okay? So again, this is the one half of the 1% of the Bible that people say, oh, that's a contradiction. That doesn't make any sense. So give you some examples, all right? First one, did Saul or his whole group fall to the ground? Okay, what does that mean? Well, in Scripture, in the book of Acts, Saul, who will become Paul, is walking down the road and he sees this light, right? Some of you guys know this story. And when he sees the light, Scripture says, Luke tells us that he fell to the ground. But a few chapters later, Luke tells us that Saul's whole group fell to the ground. So which is it? People say, well, which is it? The one chapter says Saul fell to the ground. The other chapter says the whole group fell to the ground. Which one is it? Both are true. Both are true. I'll give you an example of this. Um, when I was a kid, I was playing football with a bunch of friends in a field next to a church near my house. And the plan was we were going to play manly football, and then we were going to go back to my house, and we were going to hang out. And it had rained the night before, so this was super manly football. We were, like, covered. It was muddy. It was just so great. Tackle football out there in the muddy field. Well, as we're playing, we begin to realize something. We begin to sense a certain smell and aroma. And we begin to talk about this smell. And we begin to figure out that we weren't playing in rainwater, we were actually playing in sewage. Because the church sewage had backed up into the field. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that wonderful? And so I figured this out and went running back to my house and jumped in my shower and got all cleaned off. Now my friends, when they finally made it back to my house, I gave them a hose outside and said, clean up, right? Now my parents came to me and said, Doug, what smells? I said, I fell down in a field of sewage. When they walked outside and looked, and my friends are all hosing off on the front yard, and they said, what happened to you guys? Oh, we fell down in a field of sewage. Now, you know what my parents didn't do? They didn't come and say, Doug, we have to talk to you about uh, this objection we just discovered. Your story completely contradicted those people outside. You said you fell down in a field. They said they fell down in a field. Which is it? Both. Saul fell down, and his whole group fell down. I fell down. The whole team fell down. In the field. And so there's no contradiction. It's just simply working through that objection. Let's go to the next one. Another question people bring up. Where did Jesus meet Andrew and Peter? Okay? Now John tells us, the book of John tells us that Andrew heard Jesus speaking and he went and got Peter and said, you got to come see this guy. Okay? But Matthew says Jesus was walking on the beach and he saw Andrew and Peter and said, come follow me. So again, it seems like a contradiction. What's going on here? How can one say Jesus met them there and the other Jesus is on the beach, right? Well, I'll give you an example of my buddy Joey here. When I met Joey, he was about 11 years old. I was 21 years old, okay? I was dating Kelly or Shelly at the time. And uh, we went to hang out at Friendly's on Mount Pleasant Road. And we had a great time. We were there just laughing and joking, throwing ice cream at his little sisters. It was great. And so we're hanging out there doing that. Now, that's the first time I met Joey. Now, two years after that, when I was 23 and he was about 13, I became the youth pastor of the church. I said, hey, Joey, we're starting a youth group on Friday night. You should start coming. Come, check it out. Well, the exact same thing happened with me and Joey that happened with Jesus and Andrew and Peter. The first time he met them, Jesus was preaching. And Andrew said, Peter, you gotta come see this guy. The next time Jesus is walking on a beach, he sees the two, he says, I remember you two guys, follow me. Same situation, not a contradiction. 
just being willing to do a little bit of hard work and figure out, okay, wow, this actually works well together. Let's look at the, next, uh, the last one we're going to look at here as far as contradictions go. And this one is confusing, so you've got to stick with me, all right? I know I'm talking fast, too. It's just I've got a lot to get out here, and I don't want to keep you all night. So the next one is, when was Jesus crucified? When was Jesus crucified? Now, the question here is, is what time of day was Jesus crucified? Because it seems like there's a contradiction. And this one is tricky for a number of reasons. First off, it kind of depends on the translation you're using. Okay, now the 2011 NIV and the NLT translations, if you're not a follower of Jesus or you're not sure what I'm talking about right now, the Bible's translated by different kind of, um, I guess you could say companies, and they kind of say things slightly differently just to make it easy for us to understand. So there's different kind of translations, but they all go right back to the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic and translate it right from there, okay? So if you're looking at the 2011 NIV or the NLT, they actually make this passage and this contradiction more confusing. I think they were trying to fix it, and they actually made it more confusing, in my opinion. But there's a bunch of other translations that do a great job with this. So if you have the ESV or the KJV or the NKJV or the YMCA, um, then you have a great translation, minus that last one, um, to help us work through this objection. So here's the objection. Here's the contradiction, all right? Mark 15, 25 says that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. So remember that. It's important. Mark 19, 25 or 1525, sorry, Jesus was crucified at the third hour. Now, John 1914, John tells us that Jesus was on trial at the sixth hour. How does that work? So, we, so Mark is telling us that Jesus is on the cross at the third hour. John has Jesus back off the cross at the sixth hour on trial. That doesn't make any sense, right? Obviously, a contradiction. Well, again, there's some stuff we've just got to look harder into. Don't just pass this stuff by and say, eh, the Bible can't be trusted. Here's what we know. We know that the Jews and the Romans had different ways of keeping track of time. They both used two 12-hour time periods, just like we do, okay? Now, the Romans used the same exact system we use. In other words, they started keeping track of time at 12 noon and 12 midnight, okay? The Jews, though, did something different in Jesus' day. They used two 12-hour time periods, but they started at 6 p.m., and 6 a.m. And so suddenly when you know that and you realize John was writing to a Roman audience so he would have used the Roman time system and Mark was writing to a Jewish audience so he would have used the Jewish time system, it lines up absolutely perfect. Basically, when it all plays out, if you kind of flatten them all on the same timeline, John says Jesus is on trial at 6 a.m. according to say like our time and then Mark has Jesus on the cross three hours later at 9 a.m. Right? So if the Jewish time system started at 6 a.m., three hours in would be 9 a.m. So it works out perfectly. Jesus is on trial at 6, and he's on the cross at 9. Just working through that contradiction, working through that discrepancy. And I'm telling you, the more we learn about history and science and archaeology, the more we understand the first century or whatever we're looking at in the Bible, the more we find that there really aren't contradictions as we look at his word. Translation makes things difficult sometimes. Archaeology, history, and science are still trying to catch up. And sometimes we've just got to look harder. So that kind of ends the section about contradictions. But now, what do we do when God seems to endorse things that surprise us? Right? What do we do when we read in the Bible and suddenly we see it, it seems like God's okay with slavery or it seems like God's okay with polygamy, you know, a, a man marrying more than one woman? Well, let's, let's start with the first question. Was God okay with slavery? Did he endorse or promote 
slavery. Well, here's what we have to look at, and I've shared this with you guys before in the past, so maybe for some of you it'll just be a little reminder, but slavery was really different in, in the first century than what we know of it, okay? Obviously, terrible things happen in our country. Terrible things have happened around the world when it comes to slavery. This is a very different type of slavery we talk about in the first century. First of all, in Jesus' day, slavery was not about race. And also, it was not about apprehending someone against their will and causing them to work in a way that they didn't want to work. Okay, Here's what we know about slavery in the first century. We know that it was simply a way of people paying off a debt, and often it was for a season. And really successful people like doctors or lawyers or politicians would sometimes become the slave of another person so that they could work off their debt as opposed to paying it down, okay? Sometimes people would even willfully say, you know what, I'm bringing my whole family. Can we just live with you for a season? We'll work off our debt and then we'll be able to be on our own again. Let me give you an example of, think about it this way. Let's say you go out and you take out your Visa credit card and you get into way too much debt. You're like, don't tell me my story, Doug. I don't need to hear that tonight, right? Way too much debt, and so you go and you knock on Mr. Visa's door. Mr. Visa, you home, right? And Mr. Visa comes to the door and you say, I owe you like three grand, okay? I could try and keep working and pay that off, but how about if I just move into your house, probably like a mansion anyway, it's gonna be legit, right? Move into Mr. Visa's house, and I'm going to work for you. I'm going to mow your lawn. I'm going to do your dishes. I'm going to clean your house. And when you say I have earned or, or paid off that debt, then I'll go free. That is more like what slavery was in the first century. In the Old Testament, the Bible tells us that anyone who apprehended a slave and used them against their will was to be punished. And so God did not promote or endorse slavery. Also, along with that, we'll even take it a step further. In the New Testament, Everything that was written about slavery was to protect the rights of the people who were enslaved. And so you hear things like, masters, treat your slaves with dignity and respect. Um, You hear slaves, work hard, honor God, but earn your freedom, right? So it was a totally different picture than what we're used to. And so I hope that helps a wall fall down for you. What about the next question? Was God okay with polygamy? Was he okay with a guy like Solomon taking hundreds of wives, right? Well, We need to know the difference, and again, we've looked at this in the past, we need to know the difference between description and prescription. Okay, what do I mean by that? Sometimes as you're reading the Bible, it's simply describing what happened, it's not prescribing that you should live that way. Okay, I'll give you an example just everyday life, right? If I went to the doctor and uh, he diagnosed me or he described the symptoms I was having as bronchitis. I got bronchitis, ain't nobody got time for that, right? So if he was describing... My bronchitis. If you don't know what that was, just Google that later. It's hysterical. Anyway, so if, if he were to Google, Google, wow, no, just, I'm Googling. You're Googling. Google that later. If he were to describe what was going on in me as bronchitis, he would then prescribe a medicine to heal me, okay? So there's a complete difference between description and prescription, right? So think about it this way. When God is describing that Solomon had 700 wives, anybody got time for that, right? Um, He is prescribing, don't tell Kelly, he is prescribing one wife, right? So he says Solomon had 700. He's simply describing it. He's not endorsing it. He's not promoting it. No, he's promoting, guys, have one wife, right? And so it's a completely different way of looking at it when we realize that God's not endorsing what happened in Scripture just because he's describing what happened. Some of you guys are teachers in the room, right? 
Imagine you went to your boss, your principal, and said, hey, how are things going? And you said, oh, man, it's terrible. All these kids, man, they're a mess. They're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. They're writing on the walls, doing all kinds of crazy things. And your boss, imagine he said to you, well, why are you telling them to do that? You're like, no, I'm not telling them to do that. I'm just simply describing what they are doing that's wrong. My prescription is stop writing on the walls and do the right thing. And so that's what we see throughout Scripture. We see God describing some of the sin. And we always see the consequences, don't we? We see the consequences that Solomon had for having all these wives. And so there's the description, but then there's also the prescription. And the prescription is what God endorses. Guys, have a wife, one wife. Love her well, serve her well, sacrifice yourself for her. Love her like I love the church, right? That's the prescription. The other is just simply a description. And so I hope you're seeing tonight as we look at the contradictions, as we look at some of the things that maybe we feel a little uncomfortable with and confused about, that the Bible can be trusted. That's what I want you guys to walk out of here with tonight. Just, just celebrating the truth that the Bible can be trusted. It doesn't always come real easy. It doesn't always make sense at first glance. But we've got to be willing to say, okay, I'm going to put the hard work in. And I'm going to make sure that a wall is not built between me and God because of a seeming contradiction or because... I think God endorses something that he actually doesn't. we got to be willing to push through all of that. And some of you guys are here tonight and you're saying, yeah, but Doug, I just don't even enjoy it. I don't like to read the Bible. I try to encourage you guys all the time that God wants you to read the Bible more than you do, right? God will answer the prayer, God help me to love reading your word. He will absolutely answer that prayer. If you ever wonder, does God answer prayer? That, there's one he'll answer, no doubt. He will give you the ability to understand it. He'll give you the ability to enjoy it and allow it to change, transform and change your life. So now we've kind of dealt with the objections and the contradictions. I just want to celebrate the Bible with you guys for a few minutes, and then just challenge you guys, and then we'll close in prayer together. I just want you to see how amazing the Bible is, how incredible it is, because for some of us, there's been this wall between us and our Bibles lately. I want you to see how amazing the Bible actually is. So I think Josh McDowell may have put this together, and he, he shared this so cool about the writing of the Bible. He says it was written over about a 1,500-year span, written by more than 40 authors from every walk of life, Kings, military leaders, peasants, fishermen, scholars, poets, musicians, shepherds, and more. It was written in different places, written at different times, written during different moods, written on three continents, Asia, Africa, Europe, written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Aramaic, Greek, yet they all fit together perfectly. Most of these people didn't even know each other, but their message is the same. Some of the books of the Bible, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Kings and Chronicles, and Isaiah and Micah, tell the same stories, but were written by different people. Such power in that. There is no book like the Bible. It's not even a book. It's a collection of books. And they all fit together perfectly, and they can be trusted. Let's just look at history for a second and celebrate something incredible. I I shared earlier that science, archaeology, and history are still kind of catching up a little bit. I just want you to see the power of this, okay? So, as you look through the Old Testament, there are some portions of Scripture where they just are giving straight-up history. And there's one particular portion where the Bible names the names of kings and says they were in certain places at certain times. And they get it right over and over and over and over again. And I want you to see this, this brainiac guy, Professor Wilson, put this quote together. He says about the probability of being able to name those kings in the right places at the right times. He says the probability of this I'm sorry, of this accuracy occurring by chance is mathematically equated to be one in that number. That's 750 with 21 zeros after it, okay? 
By the way, these 29 kings live between 2000 BC and 400 BC. That means the Old Testament puts the correct king at the correct place for 1400 straight years without making one mistake. So if they took the Old Testament manuscript and they're looking at it and they're lining it up with the secular history books, the Bible's getting it right and getting it right and getting it right and getting it right and getting it right. Incredible. Not a mistake. No chance that could have happened if the Bible weren't true. Now let's jump to science for a minute here. Isaiah 40, 22 talks about how God sits above the circle of the earth. The verse here, you guys can look at the screen, says he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, right? And so I love that 2,200 something years before Columbus sails and discovers the earth is round, that Isaiah in 750 BC is hearing from God, round earth, round earth. And you know what? I just think about this, right? I mean, 1492, okay, subtract those 2,200 years. For, for 2,200 years, I just wonder if people were reading this verse going, man, Isaiah got this so wrong. <laughs> we all know the earth's flat, right? But science just had to catch up, right? Another example here, um, Leviticus 17.11. Look at this verse with me. For the life of a creature is in the blood. What does that mean? The life of a creature is in the blood. It means that if our blood were drained from us, we would die. It means that the thing that keeps us alive in our physical bodies is our blood flow. Okay? Now, it's going to be a little bit of an awkward transition, but George Washington, right, he gets sick. He gets sick. It's only 218 years ago. All right? And do you know how he died? His doctors essentially bled him to death. They thought if they got enough of his sick blood out of him that he would recuperate. 218 years ago, we didn't know that the life of the creature was in the blood. Science just had to catch up. The Bible can be trusted. History, science, archaeology. The Bible can be trusted. Not just history, science, and archaeology, but what it says to you about your life. What it says to you about how to be a great husband, wife, parent, child to your parents, worker, boss, student, what it says to you about how to make decisions, what it says to you about how to grow closer to your Savior, it can be trusted. And when contradictions arise, don't let it build a wall. Work through it. I want to encourage you guys, now that we know the Bible can be trusted and we've seen some of the amazing things, and I could have gone on and on. I'm editing a ton of stuff to get you out of here on time. We could go on and on looking at science and history and archaeology and all these beautiful things that show us how accurate the Bible actually is. But what I want you to do as a result of this is I want you to respond, right? I want you to get in God's word every day. Read it every day. Spend some time looking through his word, applying it to your life. Memorize it. Memorize it. You're going to need God's word in your heart as you're tempted, right? The greatest tool we have when we are tempted is God's word. That's how Jesus fought the temptation when he was tempted. That's what Paul says when he talks about the sword of the spirit. It's literally a spoken word of God, not just having it in your heart, but actually speaking it out. So having it there. So if you're tempted when it comes to lust, have some verses in your heart ready. When you're tempted, when it comes to somebody saying, hey, you want to come to this party? You want to come to this place? You want to come to my house? And this is what we're going to do. And you're like, oh, I'm so tempted. Get some verses in your heart. Just have them ready. That's going to help you. You're tempted to hang on to anger or unforgiveness or anxiety. Get some verses in your heart about forgiveness or peace. And watch the power of God's word in your heart come to life. Meditate on it. That's not like a spooky, weird thing to do. Meditation is God's idea. Okay? Meditate on it. All it means 
is that we think about over and over again and speak out God's word. Some of you guys are friends with me on the YouVersion app, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. And some of you guys might think, like, once in a while, I just don't read my Bible. But usually it's because I'm stuck meditating on a verse or a few passages. And I'm just like, oh, this is so good. But lately it's been John 15, 5. I'm the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I've just been stuck on that verse lately. I need that so badly in my life right now, to be connected to him. And so getting it in your heart is so important, meditating on it, praying it getting into Psalms, praying some of the Psalms, get into Romans 8, get into John 15, get into Galatians 5 and pray some of these passages. My wife Kelly's been just listening to scripture as she's been fighting through this battle these last several weeks. Some of you guys know Pastor Pavone. I don't know anybody who knows God's word better than Pastor Pavone. And one of the reasons that's true is because before he was a pastor, he owned two, two butcher shops in the city. And he would drive from Smithtown into the city every day, and he would listen to these, these old-school archaic devices known as cassette tapes. And he would play them, and he would listen to God's word back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it got in his heart, and it transformed him. Work through the difficulties. Work through the difficulties. Let me give you some resources. First, we'll give you a Bible tonight. If your Bible has lots of these and thous and those and thines, that's okay if you like that. If you don't like that, we'll give you a Bible. It's a little bit easier to understand. If you walk out and you go toward the cafe, there's a bookshelf, and the blue Bible's there. Take them. There's also little things called promise books. Those are little books that aren't Bibles, but they have little passages of Scripture and encouragements. Feel free to take those for free tonight. I mentioned the YouVersion Bible app. Download that thing on your iPhone or your other device. Um, it's so awesome. It's so encouraging. There's Bible studies on it. There are reading plans on it. Like I said, we can kind of be friends and, and, it's, and we can like be you know, looking at what, what each other is reading. And it's so great because instead of just like what the cat did last night on Facebook or whatever, like it's way more meaningful. So we can be friends on the YouVersion app and be encouraging a little bit. I hate cats. Um, and so um, next, BibleStudyTools.com. BibleStudyTools.com. I just alienated 30% of my audience. Awesome. BibleStudyTools.com. Cats are wonderful creations of the Lord. Um, if you want to go to BibleStudyTools.com, it's a great resource because as you're reading, say John 15, on the bottom, there's all these commentaries. So Charles Spurgeon, what did Charles Spurgeon think about John 15? Well, he's a little hard to get a hold of. So John 15, <laughs> verse 5, you can, man, get in John 15, right? John Wesley, all these different guys, you can be seeing what they thought about those scriptures if you want to go deep in God's word. Um, if you run into an, a contradiction or an objection, head to defendinginerrancy.com, defendinginerrancy.com, and you can literally find the scriptures that you're struggling with, and they will help you understand how to work through it. Oh, that's why it says that. Oh, that's why it's not a contradiction. Oh, that's how it makes sense. They've done the hard work for you and me. We are spoiled, guys. 20 years ago, before many of you existed, so, also the internet did not exist. My, that blows my kids' minds. They could not fathom. My kids the other day are like, so wait, if you like missed a show when you were at school, you like watched it on YouTube, right? I'm like, there was no YouTube, bro. Okay, so, but it was streaming. There was no, nothing to stream, right? There was a stream. I could go throw rocks in it. That's all I had. Anyway, so, so as, as you guys, I forget where I was heading with all that. I got all confused now. Kids, something like that. Oh, the hard work. Yes, yes. So, so we're really spoiled because now... Um, now we can just jump online and find all these answers. You didn't have that 20 years ago. You didn't have all these answers. You didn't have DefendingRNC.com. You didn't have BibleStudyTools.com and amazing apps. We are spoiled. And yet I'd say we might be the least passionate generation to be in God's word. Man, we got to change that. We got to get fired up about his word again. And if we do, 
we will be hearing from God through his word. We will be getting the, the info we need about how to love well, how to serve well, how to forgive. We'll get the power that we need in our hearts and our lives to overcome temptation. We'll be getting closer to Jesus, the point of it all, who's called the word of God, right? And we'll be sure he's speaking to us because we'll know his word, right? When he speaks to us outside his word, we'll know it's him because we'll know his word so well. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to challenge you to be in his word. I want to challenge you that you can trust it, be in it daily, get it in your heart, get it in your mind, and continue on in all that he has for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you heard me talk about Jesus dying for us. You heard me talking about him rising back from the dead. And he did that so you could know him, so that you could be forgiven of all your sin, and that you could know this amazing God and a love relationship. And so I want to give you an opportunity to pray and look to him tonight if you'd like to. But I hope that you're encouraged tonight to, to know that the Bible can be trusted. Let's pray. Jesus, we just love you so much, God, and we're so grateful to you for your faithfulness in our lives to preserve your word, God. It blows my mind that it was the, the will of kings and rulers to destroy your word, to eradicate it, and it's stronger than ever. God, we just are so grateful that you preserved it for us, and we thank you that it's trustworthy, and we thank you that it's life-changing. We thank you, God, that you want to speak through it to every single one of us. And so I pray you'll help us, God. For anybody in the room that's struggling with this, that really has a hard time with your word, God, help us to love it. Put a passion in our hearts for it. Give us the ability to memorize it, to meditate on it, and to live it, God. If you're a Christian, would you just pray about that? Would you maybe think and pray about carving out some time? When's it going to work for you? What are you going to do to get closer to God? If you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to give you a chance to respond tonight. Maybe you want to put your trust in him, and I would encourage you to just pray something like this, just quietly between you and God. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for dying in my place. Please forgive me for my sin. Show me how real you are. Thank you for your love. God, help me to understand your word. Let it make a huge difference in my life. Thank you for all you've done for me. In your name.